Our message today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. Hear these words. One day while he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting nearby. They had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Just then, some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a bed. They were trying to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said, Friends, your sins are forgiven you. Then the scribes and the Pharisees begin to question, Who is this who's speaking blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their questionings, he answered them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Stand up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the one who was paralyzed, I say to you, stand up and take your bed and go home. Immediately he stood up before them, took what, had been li took what he had been lying on, and went to his home, glorifying God. Amazement seized all of them, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen strange things today. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So we've been walking through a number of sayings, things that I'm sure no one in this room has ever said to anybody um, uh, because when we find out that they are not in the Bible, they are not scriptural, um, and sometimes they do more harm than good, we can kind of be taken aback by that information. So, uh, sometimes we as Christians get a bad rap, uh, and sometimes uh, we're known to be a little judgmental or to uh, be the morality police. And um, admittedly, this phrase, uh, hate the sin, uh, love the sinner, or love the sinner, hate the sin, I've heard it both ways, um, is one of those tricky phrases that um, people use. I don't know about you, but I've seen this on Facebook since the beginning of time. It's just all over social media. I'm wondering, just by show of hands, and you at home can raise your hand too, I'm watching. Uh, how many of you, I'm just curious, have heard this phrase before, seen it used? Yeah, yeah, just about everybody in the room. Okay, good, I'm glad we're preaching on something that we've heard about. This is, uh, we come across it a lot. So this saying, really, if at face value, is attempting to be gracious. It is attempting to distinguish between a person and those person's actions. And so you uh, um, are kind of taking the role saying, uh, look, I don't, I, I don't hate you. I just hate what, the things that you might participate in or the things that you do or the thing that you support or whatever it is. Uh, and I, I'm gonna hop into this and say it's probably not the most helpful phrase for us, and I wanna offer a, a, a new phrase, hopefully a more helpful phrase. So you might be shocked to know that this saying is nowhere in the Bible. 
You can Google it all you want. It ain't there. Um, unless you add it, and then we can go down the road of heresy later. Uh, but this is just not in the Bible. It's not there. You can't find it. No one says it. Uh, we see it a lot in pop culture, right? You might use it jokingly, like uh, maybe your taste in music. I'll say, well, you know what they say, uh, you know, hate the sin and not the sinner. Is, you know, you might like Justin Bieber. I'm so sorry. It's a sin. Or, you know, you use it jokingly. Or maybe you would use it jokingly with, like, politics a little bit. Like, I can't believe mom or dad are voting for so-and-so, but you know what they say, you know, hate the sin and not the sinner. Uh, So it gets used a little bit kind of jokingly. And then at times, it gets used very seriously. Maybe with um, family and the LGBTQ community. And you'd say, look, I don't have a problem with them. I love them, but I don't approve of what they do or what they participate in or who they choose to Mary. Sometimes it's used very seriously in conversations around immigration. Uh, you know, Romans 13 says that we should be subject uh, to the uh, authority placed over us. And the law of the land says there's a proper way to come to this country. And so if they break the law, then they need to be deported or uh, put into a camp for processing, right? You've heard these arguments before. You've taken uh, part of them. I've been a part of these conversations before. This is not uh, crazy left field arguments. Uh, It happens all the time, specifically in Christianity. So now that I've put myself out there, I hope you can appreciate the dangers that I am going to take professionally talking about this. I am anticipating my inbox to just blow up over the weekend. You all are going to email me uh, very kind remarks, I'm sure. And I'll spend my time very kindly uh, responding to every email I get. No doubt today I will ruffle some feathers and step on some toes. And so I pray that this could be the beginning of a conversation on how we use phrases like this and how we engage with people who are all the time not altogether similar to us. So that's my covenant to you is that I will respond to your emails. That's all I'm going to say. (laughs) And we'll move uh, from that. So first, it's not in the Bible. Second, I don't think this phrase is very helpful. And third, I think it needs to be stricken uh, from our vocabulary. As a good Methodist, I uh, follow the rules, the general rules of the church. And the first general rule that John Wesley laid out for the Methodist church is to do no harm. And I think that this phrase in particular, while it seeks to be kind and it seeks to be gracious, I ultimately think it does harm to the person we engage in the conversation with. Because it's used over these cultural flashpoints like immigration or the LGBTQ issue, Uh, But it's never, ever, ever used against things like uh, gluttony or uh, materialism or consumerism or gossip, things that sit so comfortably in our pews in Christendom. We never use it then. I've never heard someone say, well, you know what they say, so-and-so is a straight-up gossip, but love the sin and, uh, sorry, love the uh, sinner and hate the sin. Uh, It's never used in that way. So we tend to weaponize it and use it only when we really really don't like what's being talked about, which I would argue is going to be hard. Uh, It's going to be hard to come to that stance. So where in the world does this saying come from? Okay, let's pull up a little bit and say, okay, Josh, we know the saying. Where where is it rooted at? Some would say it begins with St. Augustine, uh, who wrote a lot of letters, so much so that they just stopped naming them and started numbering them as historians. So this comes from letter 211, to um, a a convent of nuns, and he writes the following. He says, with love for mankind and hatred 
for sins. Okay, maybe it starts there. No matter where it began, if it began with St. Augustine or if it begins earlier or later, it was made most famous, most famous excuse me, by Gandhi. I'm going to read the quote for you all. He said, Hate the sin and not the sinner is a precept which, though easy enough to understand, is rarely practiced. And that is why the poison of hatred spreads in the world. And so what are my two big issues with this uh, phrase? What are my two big issues with this statement? Well, the first one is that it really seeks to differentiate between people and their actions. It seeks to differentiate between people and their actions, which seems gracious, and I'm going to argue today is near impossible to do. The second thing, my big issue with this, is that it implies that you are the one doing the judgment, that you get to sit in a place of judgment over people's actions. And um, I'm going to argue today that that's not your job, or it's not my job, but that's, that's God's job. Uh, so those are my two big issues with this saying. So, when we look at our passage today out of the Gospel of Luke, and the problem with preaching on a, a hairy, big topic like this is uh, really I'm going to be talking about a couple different passages. So I had to pick one, and I chose that one in Luke. And uh, a couple things become clear as we hear from the Gospel of Luke about the man, the paralytic, being lowered through the roof. Uh, the first is that Jesus forgives the man's sins, right? And the Pharisees, that's code talk for pastors, the pastors get really upset at Jesus. They're like, you can't do that. And uh, the reason he couldn't do that, except for he's God, he can do whatever he wants, uh, except for the reason he can't do that is because there was already a system in place to forgive sins. There was already a system in place to forgive sins, and it was the temple system. And it arbitrated forgiveness and reconciliation between people and God. So the Pharisees are saying, Jesus, you can't do that. We have a system, it's called religion, and that's what's in place to forgive people. Not compassion, not grace, not you acting this way. We have a system that does that. And Jesus says, uh-uh, I'm uh, taking care of this system. The second one is this moral and cultural concept that everyone in this day and age owed a sin debt to God. And this sin debt that all of humanity had had to be uh, accounted for on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, by a blood sacrifice. That was the only way that you could forgive sins and reconcile yourself with God. And the third thing that kind of becomes clear at this passage is when Jesus does this, when he forgives this man's sins, it flies in the face of the moral justification that these Pharisees seem to have. They are not happy with Jesus. It's like that we often get the order of love and forgiveness all sorts of wrong. Peter Rollins in his book, The Orthodox Heretic, he explains it this way. He says, it's Christ's understanding of forgiveness that was so radical because he did not need people to repent before he accepted them. Catch the order of operations there? Jesus does not go to the paralytic man and say, are you asking for forgiveness? Now I'll forgive you. No, he just forgives the man. Doesn't even ask him anything. And that's like, the Pharisees are really ticked off about that. So he's not even repentant, Jesus. He's not even saying that he did anything wrong. 
And Jesus will see again, again, and again, and again, and again, and again in the Gospels does not care about the order of operations. He just forgives people flat out. And the people it usually upsets the most are the religious folk. And that sits awkwardly with me sometimes because I'm a religious person. That's why I'm up here talking, right? So I don't know if it sits awkwardly with you at times. I think it should. It should rub us the wrong way and say, but Jesus, what about accountability? Jesus, what about repentance? Jesus, what about them setting it right and and righting all the wrongs they did? What about time behind bars to to say they're they're sorry? What about them being a danger to society or a danger to our tribe? Jesus doesn't seem to care about any of that. And that's strange, you know? Um, I think, like, strange. It's just strange. I hope it um, uh, upsets you a little bit. Because I think we often expect people to repent and then we will love them. It's like, I won't forgive so-and-so in my family until they say I'm sorry. Once they say I'm so- they're sorry, then I'll love them. And Jesus is really challenging us on that. He say, maybe you should love them, and then they might say they're sorry. That's, that's a challenge for me today. Because love of neighbor and Christian love is truly unconditional. So, where was I before I started preaching? Uh, back to my two problems with this uh, saying. The first one is it distinguishes between people and their actions. And this is how the argument usually goes. My uncle, I don't, this is, this is I'm making up this argument. Is it, my, my uncle's really not, okay, you follow me? Okay. My uncle is a great person. It doesn't really matter that he embezzled all that money from Enron and now no one has a retirement job anymore, or retirement anymore. Uh, he's, a, he's a good person. Uh, but he just made some bad choices, and you know what they say. I, I love my uncle, but I hate what he did. Right? This is how the argument goes, and this is going to get a little heady. I need you to, to bear with me and work with me through this. It's a philosophical argument that you can distinguish between someone, who they are, and the actions they take. So my uncle can be a, a, a good person, whatever that means, and he does some things that I don't agree with. That doesn't mean I don't love him, right? This is the argument that people usually make. But I would um, say that we are often really, really, really bad at distinguishing between people and their actions. And we are prone to conflating judgment with condemnation. We are prone with conflating judgment with condemnation. Oftentimes we cannot distinguish between who you are as a person, and the things that you do. I think about this saying that Jesus uses in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, why are you so, like, looking after the speck in your neighbor's eye when you have this giant log sticking out of yours? That, uh, that sort of comes up for me when I think about this idea of judging other people and their actions. Because I don't know anybody. I don't know any buddy who says, well, I know that my family thinks everything that I do is morally evil, but I know they love me. I don't know anybody who's ever said that. I know far too many people who say, my family thinks what I do is wrong, therefore they must not love me. And it's because we conflate judgment and condemnation as people. And so I think this saying does a lot of harm. The second problem Uh, with the saying that I have, is that it implies that you are the one judging the morality of actions. This one's a little less heady. Uh, First, 
Um, you aren't God. Okay, next point. Uh, yeah, also, I'm not God, right? There's this story in the Gospel of John where the, uh, the tribe that Jesus is in catches a woman in adultery, John chapter 8. And they drag the woman out and they say, Jesus, the law commands us that we stone such a woman. What do you say that we do with them? And Jesus says, I tell you that if you are without sin, you can throw the first stone. Ha ha! There is someone in that meeting who's without sin. It's Jesus. So Jesus picks up a stone and he doesn't. He doesn't. The only person actually who can do what Jesus says is Jesus. And Jesus chooses to do the opposite of what he says. Jesus chooses to forgive her. It's like, by forgiving her, that might make her whole. By forgiving the person that you do not agree with, it might actually build a bridge of reconciliation with that person. We are called to be compassionate, graceful, and forgiving people. Paul in Colossians tells us to bear patiently with one another, forgiving as Christ forgave us. So as we look to this phrase, uh, love the sinner and hate the sin, I think it's time for us to retire this phrase for a different phrase. I'm gonna offer something that I think is helpful. Try this on. Love the sinner and forgive the sin. Love the sinner and forgive the sin. What this does is it shifts our attention from being the morality police to what Paul calls us to be, and that is ambassadors of the message of reconciliation. We are called to be ambassadors of the messengers of, rec of reconciliation. So if we moved away from the old saying, uh, love the sinner, hate the sin, to this new saying, love the sinner, forgive the sin, we might just become known, not just for our judgment, but for our love. And then maybe what Jesus says to his disciples in the Gospel of John will become true, that we will be known by our love for one another. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.